Um, they were like really, they just didn't like what I did. They thought I didn't do what they had asked me to do and stuff like that. And my like initial reaction, like my first thought was just like, oh, well then I'm just going to go Fugazi and give them their money back. Like just what, here, take it back. Then I don't yeah. want to be, inde- I don't want to feel indebted to you. Huh. If you're not having a good time, take your money back. Yeah. Wow. And I was talking to somebody who is not, you know, I mean, everybody has exposure to punk at this point because yeah. it's, it's a thing, but like, they are not punk people. Yeah. And they were just like, why would you do that? Like, yeah, your time is so valuable. Like you, why would, and I was like, I don't know, because I just, because I grew up listening to Fugazi and Fugazi's thing was like, if you don't, if you don't want to, if you don't want to meet us on our terms, then ha- have your money back. Yeah. Yeah. We're not indebted to you in that way. Yep. Shirts are $7, records are 10, 12, whatever. <laughs> well, I just wanted to be the face of neutrality. I never wanted to live. Hello and welcome to the EduPunks podcast. This is your host, Craig Biderman, bringing you another conversation with an everyday educator and daily disruptor in the world of education and music and life in general. This week, I'm chatting with my buddy, Connor McLaughlin, who works at the University of San Diego, all the way over in California on the West Coast. So we got to record a, a chat while it was still morning for him and afternoon for me. That was nice. It was pretty cool i had already got a bunch of stuff done and he was just getting up (laughs) to start his day but we had a great conversation we talk about uh his introduction into punk and what that meant for him and what leaving leading a straight edge lifestyle has meant for him and uh his life as an ethics professor and someone who does a lot of work in the realm of uh education and teaching future leaders in the world of education as well. So we have a really cool conversation, a kind of a conversation that I haven't really had before on this podcast. He's an immensely uh, brilliant human being, and we have two very different styles of how punk shows up in our life. So it's really great to hear uh, that perspective as well. This week, you're going to hear a bunch of tunes from the band I Kill Giants. Uh, it's an album that came out five years ago and Near Mint Records has remastered it and is re-releasing it so that you can have a brand new vinyl pressing of it for the five-year anniversary. The album came out in 2013. Members are now in a bunch of different bands uh, doing a bunch of stuff here in, in Boston and New York and all over the East Coast. But I'm going to be sharing you some of the tunes from an album, uh, the self-titled album that came out five years ago uh thanks to the folks at near mint records and so yeah you'll get to hear some of that later and i'm not gonna dilly dally too much in this 
part of the conversation or in this part of the podcast. So if uh, you like what you hear, please tell your friends, share it, rate, review it, subscribe, whatever, all those things that podcast people tell you to do. All right, let's get to this conversation with Connor McLaughlin. All right, so I'm sitting here digitally with my friend Connor McLaughlin. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am very good. Uh, my dentist says that I am doing a great job flossing. Um, likely the first time I've ever heard that. So, well, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I feel good about it. I'm I'm pretty happy. Nice. Yeah. Uh, anything new on your end of the world? Uh. Uh, I have a lot of grading to do uh, oh. because my my life as an adjunct professor means I've got 30-something final papers to get through between now and the 31st of May. And oh on June 1st, I've also got uh, conference proposals to have fully reviewed. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what's new in my world. Well, dang, it sounds like you got enough to keep you busy, but... I know a little Certainly. bit about you. Folks know. Folks listening might not know anything about you. Can you tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you come from, how you got there? Yeah, so my name is Connor McLaughlin. I currently serve as an adjunct professor in the Department of Leadership Studies at the University of San Diego. Uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia. I grew up uh, sort of between Philadelphia and New Jersey uh, until I was 18, Uh, Went to college just outside of Philadelphia and along the way discovered the field of student affairs uh, because I really liked being an RA and thought it would be a cool job. And so went, uh, moved to New York City to attend the teacher's college at Columbia University to get a master's in higher education. And my first job out of graduate school was working in residence life at Cornell University, where I met a very fantastic and quite lovely person who uh, wanted to move to California. And I said, well, I'm really interested in continuing to make this thing work with you. And California seems nice. So let's move to California. And it'll actually be 10 years ago this July that I made the jump from Ithaca, New York to San Diego, California. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is the longest I've ever lived in one place aside from the house I grew up in. So this is my longest sort of adult residency. Oh, I'm in kind of that situation, too, but it's only been about three and a half years. Mm. Yeah, because all throughout college, I mean, you move so often. Yeah, I had made it I had made it a pretty. uh pretty reliable habit to move every 10 to 13 months almost (laughs) on the dot between moving around in college and then moving in somewhere for the summer into a sublet. Mm -hmm. And then I did a one year master's program. So I lived in New York city for a year and then moved to upstate New York or central New York because the people in Buffalo would be very angry at me for calling Ithaca upstate. (laughs) Uh, But Yeah, so then moved to Ithaca for a year and then moved to California. And it's been kind of it's been kind of nice to not move for a while to kind of stay put. It's a very much a change of pace and something I was not used to. 
Yeah, I bet the weather is a bit of a change, too. Yes, in that it does not snow in May. Ugh. We had, a, like, a massive thunderstorm slash potential, like, tornadoes in mass the other day. I was like, all right, this is May, I guess. Wow. Yeah, that's intense. <laughs> it was so... And, I mean, I'm from Oregon originally and, like, mm-hmm. not used to that kind of weather either. And, like, not used to a whole bunch of snow. So, like, it's been weird living on living on the East Coast for all of that. Yeah. When I was in Philadelphia for NASPA, it, it had just been a huge snowstorm. And there was one, another one the day after I left, and it was still very, very cold the whole time I was there. And I said, I was staying with my best friend, and I said, like, look, I don't think I can hang with this anymore. Yeah. I just, I think California has really thinned my blood. I'm, there aren't enough layers on the planet to help me deal with this wind. <laughs> See, and I'm like an all season runner. So mm. the winter and stuff. And I mean, my partner's from Wisconsin. So I would run at night in Wisconsin in like 14 degree weather. And so I've kind of gotten used to it, which is weird for me to think about, but it's a thing now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's all about environment and how you adapt to it. And I have clearly adapted quite quite lovingly to my environment of, you know, only ever being between 58 and 72 degrees and sunny 300 days a year. Uh, that's a tough life, you know? It is. <laughs> well, you and I, so you reached out initially, like, because you and I have something in common. We're both straight edge. Um, which I am very stoked whenever I meet someone in education who is edge. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into edge and punk culture growing up? So I'm sure that if I start telling the story of like how I got into punk, eventually it will occur to me how (laughs) I, because for me, and this is very different than my experience. Like when I talk to my other friends who are straight edge, um, I think my trajectory into straight edge is a little different than a lot of theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew what straight edge was before I decided that I was straight edge. Um, it wasn't like I had always been straight edge and then found that there was a word to describe what I was being. Um, so I got into punk. So I was born in 1984 And I wish that I could say like, oh, yeah, my parents were into the Ramones and I, you know, had been exposed to punk in the womb. But that was not the case because my parents are into like the Rolling Stones and and Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel, which is awesome in its own right. But I was not, you know, exposed to the first wave of punk. Um, I I have memories of hearing the clash on sort of what at the time was like the classic rock radio station Mm -hmm. in New Jersey where I grew up. Um, And I loved The Clash. Uh, I particularly remember uh, loving uh, uh, Safe European Home. I heard that song on the radio and was just blown away. uh, And I loved it. And then uh, because I was, you know, born in 84, so I was about, I was... 10 in 1994 when punk had its sort of next big sort of resurgence in the popular sort of zeitgeist and so like when dookie came out yeah uh, when the big epitaph boom happened Mm -hmm. when uh, you know smash and and let's go came out 
and so I think probably one of my first exposures to, you know, sort of what like non 77 punk. So not like the clash or the Ramones was seeing the offspring on MTV on like 120 minutes and hey. not really knowing what it was but just feeling really drawn to like the urgency of the music and then you know i am an only child so i didn't have older siblings but a lot of the people i went to school with had older siblings so they had you know tapes that their siblings would make them that had uh so, you know, when their older siblings were buying Green Day records and taping it for them and, you know, Nirvana tapes, yeah. um, which, you know, sort of as a side thing, I never really liked Nirvana. I still don't really like Nirvana, which seems to be an odd thing. But I don't know. I'm kind of in the same. I think yeah. I, they were one of those bands I didn't. I don't know. They just didn't appeal to me. Yeah, I, I didn't know. get it. I still don't. Um, but <laughs> I was exposed to a lot of that stuff through, you know, friends having older siblings who were really into music. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm the person, I'm the kind of person who I get really, if, when I get into something, I like dive headfirst and want to know like everything about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I found out what music in general was, you know, I pulled all my parents' records out of their sort of very small record collection and would read the liner notes and read about the the producers and who wrote the songs and things like that. And so when, you know, punk bands were on MTV, a lot of them would have stickers on their guitars. And so I would try, you know, this, this is before, you know, it was really easy to YouTube things. I feel, I feel like I'm a thousand years old saying that, Uh. but you're three um, so years. It, you're only three years older than me, but I still remember those. Like you couldn't just go home and look something up, right? And so I remember, like, uh, I remember watching um, a Headbangers Ball and seeing the the video for Raining Blood by Slayer, yeah, and seeing that Jeff Hanneman had a Dead Kennedy sticker on his guitar, and didn't know what the DK was, but just remember that logo. And then, you know, also remember like seeing the, uh, the video for sweet child of mine where Steven Adler's wearing a TSOL shirt and Mm. just thinking like, what do those letters mean? (laughs) And so those images were sort of like, I was always really curious about it and tried to find all these different, like, Oh, you know, I'd ask people like, what is that? Um, and one of the, uh, I'm like, I have like 10 stories like flying through my head at the same time. Uh, so it was just having this like ongoing curiosity about like, what are these logos? What are these letters? What do these symbols mean? Like, I remember seeing the black flag bars years before I ever understood what black flag was or knew about black flag. Um, and I think at some point in probably like eighth grade. Now, yeah, it would have been about eighth grade. I saw a live picture in a compilation and somebody had these big giant X's like drawn on their hand. And I was just like, what is that? (laughs) 
I had I I, I want to say it was H. It was like a picture of H two O. Okay. Uh, and, and Toby from H two O, and he had these big X's drawn on his hands, and I was just like, "What is that?" I'm so fascinated by why somebody would draw on their hands. Mm-hmm. So. Fast forward a couple of years, you know, sort of in high school, I think I was a second year in high school, because I, I was about 15, and I went to a house party um, that a friend of mine who was a little bit older was throwing, and um, I don't know if my, I don't know if my parents are going to listen to this, but yes, uh, I'm sure at this point, I, it's there, they understand that I'm old enough and mature enough that I can admit to having made stupid decisions as a teenager. Yeah. But, you know, I went, went to a house party where people were drinking underage and, you know, had like, of course, I like I had had I had tasted alcohol before. I mean, like my parents weren't super teetotalers um, and they would let me have like a sip of wine or something every once in a while. But at this party was the first time I ever like tried drinking. Okay. And so I drank a beer and I remember sitting there like at this party drinking a beer and thinking like, God, I don't like this. This is not enjoyable to me on like any level. Mm-hmm. And I, because I, you know, somewhere in that intervening years, well, like the, I got exposed to the internet and I don't know which came first that I figured out what straight edge was or looked it up on the internet, but I figured out like why that guy had X's on his hands. I'd heard the minor threat song straight edge and I started thinking while I was at this party, cause I'm a very like in my head person as might become evident if it hasn't already. (laughs) I started thinking like, well, I don't really like this. This isn't enjoyable to me. And so I asked myself, well, why do I do this? I was like, oh, I think I'm doing this because other people want me to or other people expect me to. And that was the first moment that I can identify any sort of like like an expansion of consciousness Hmm. in that I, I felt like I understood the world that was going on around me at a level that I hadn't understood it before that like, Oh, I feel motivated to do something entirely by other people. And I actually have a choice about whether or not I want to do what other people expect of me. Hmm. And so in that moment I was like, okay, well if I don't like this and I don't want to do it, and the only reason I would do it is because other people want me to, then I'm not going to do it because it's not a good reason to do things that, I don't like and that I don't get any enjoyment out of. Yeah. And of course I wrestled with that a lot because, you know, being a teenager and, you know, experiencing peer pressure is a complicated thing and can lead to a lot of difficult social interactions. But I was just like, you know, this is like really, no, this is like really a thing I'm, I'm feeling, I feel committed to, like it feels really important to me that I'm not going to do this just because other people want to do it or want me to do it. And a number of years later, uh, a friend of mine, uh, his name is Daniel, he put it so wonderfully. Uh, we were playing, we were playing cards together. Um, and somebody was trying to like goad him into making a poor decision. Like, Oh, you know, you should put your money in or you should do the whatever. I don't remember exactly what happened, mm-hmm. but he looks up at this person with like a completely straight face and just says, I'm straight edge. I don't give in to peer pressure. Ah! And I was just like, 
that's so perfect and so awesome because that's in a lot of ways that's like the perfect distillation of what it means to be straight edge and it's such like a beautifully articulate way to describe the experience that I had um, of deciding that like this was going to be a part of who I was had to do with you know the realization of how peer pressure was functioning in my life and how I was going to make a conscious choice to resist that yeah and I mean that's like at the core of punk in general it's just like the best form of counterculture is to legitimately refuse to uh, give in to like the mainstream culture. And uh, one of the biggest things in our culture is alcohol and it's drugs and there's smoking everywhere. And like the biggest way to be counter is to not do those things. Like, to me, that makes a lot of sense. And growing up, I was also one of those people that like drinking never really, uh, was never really an interest of mine and I didn't really get it. And even in college, when I did start drinking a little bit, like it wasn't something I enjoyed and it ended up being something that I made it medicated with. So Mm -hmm. like I recognized quickly how big of a problem it can be and why so many people fall to that problem And like, I just felt like parts of me were slipping away and I was losing track of that piece that was in control. Um, I remember like, I don't, I'm also not one of those people who has never like, who has decided to be straight edge and has never sort of critically thought about it. I mean, I've, I've certainly had the sort of internal conversation with myself where I, you know, I've really said, Oh, well, do I want to try this? Like, do I, do I want to do this on my own terms? Do I want to not be straight edge anymore? And, you know, it never, when I think about why I would want to not be straight edge or, you know, when I like entertain the idea of it, it never, it never seems to me like it would offer me much more than what being straight edge has always offered me. Uh, so yeah, I might, you know, I might find something that I enjoy that I didn't know I enjoyed, or I might, you know, find a new, I, I might find, you know, a new thing to have a new thing to drink with dinner. But, you know, when I, but I already have a lot of things that I enjoy having with dinner and none of them involve, you know, the, none of them involve the potential risks that, uh, because, you know, I, I, uh, have a lot of people in my family who have problems with alcohol and that is something that I'm aware of and probably informs a bit of my decision to sort of, you know, abstain and to not be, not participate in drugs and alcohol, because I know that a lot of people that have with my very similar genetic information, uh, have had, pro- have developed problems with it. Yeah. One of the main things that like has kept me away as well um, was knowing my biological father is an addict and knowing that I'm like kind of predisposed to addiction and recognizing that I don't want to go down some of the same route. So I think that there are some folks and I've talked that's a kind of a consistent thing with folks that I've talked to or um, straight edge or even in the punk scenes. They don't really want to like repeat the same mistakes in their bloodline. So it's kind of a really um i find like a lot of community in that like honestly like i find a lot of community when i can relate to people in that way do you see something similar in your experience definitely um 
So I was telling when you and I had our sort of initial conversation when we were introducing ourselves to one another uh, before this conversation, I was telling you this story where um, so there was a book that came out, uh, I think, last year. Uh, and it was uh, called Straight Edge, you know, a clear headed look at punk and hardcore or something to that effect. And the author did a tour of the West Coast and he had a stop in San Diego and a friend of mine, uh, my friend Daniel, actually, who I was telling, talking about earlier, put on an event where they did, um, they had the author actually moderate a panel of people from straight edge bands from San Diego from the 80s, 90s, and the aughts. So they had uh, the, singer, the guy Tim from a band called Amenity, who's an 80s straight edge band from Chula Vista, California. Um, they had Rob from Unbroken. Uh, as one of like the seminal straight edge metalcore bands in the '90s, and one of the most amazing bands ever, and uh, Daniel, uh, who was the singer from a band called Over My Dead Body in the early aughts, uh, and I was in this room, uh, you know, that probably had maybe fifty or sixty people in it watching this panel, and most of the people in the room were straight edge. A lot of them were older than me and were still wearing X's on their hands. A lot of people had straight edge, you know, pins on their jackets. Lots of people had very visible straight edge tattoos. And I left that room feeling like really emotional and like kind of overcome in a way. And I didn't really know that feel. I didn't understand that feeling. Um, it was just, I just felt very moved. I felt like I wanted to cry like the whole drive home. And I get home and my partner says like, oh, how was it? You know, do you get to talk to everybody? Do you see your friends? Do you get to talk to everybody? How was it? And I was like, I, I feel really emotional. I feel really, you know, I feel like I want to cry and I can't figure out why that is. And she was like, oh, well, what was, what was going on? And so I was like, oh, you know, well, there was just like all these people and we all have this thing in common. And I don't know the last time I've ever been in a room with that many straight edge people who we're also like there for a thing that was about celebrating this part of who we are. And my partner who identifies as a woman of color uh, sort of looked, was like, Oh yeah, you know, you're having this experience, like the, this experience that I have told you about when I am in these spaces with people who share my identities in ways that are very uncommon in my day to day life. And I don't, Want it, I don't want to make it seem as though I'm equating being straight edge to a person of no, color no, no. because there's not the same, certainly not the same kind of systems of oppression that impact straight edge people. But she was saying, like, yes, you know, if you have a piece of who you are that is not, that you don't see a lot of and that you don't get to interact and bond with people over, having the experience of being in a room that is dedicated to that for a brief period of time can be a really powerful thing. And I was like, oh, huh. Hmm. And I just, I didn't have a response for it other than just like to be incredibly appreciative yeah. of how wonderful it was to spend time in the presence of, you know, 50 or 60 other straight edge people who were there to kind of be happy about being straight edge. Yeah, that's so wonderful. I've, I honestly haven't experienced that before and it's, but I have had like smaller group gatherings and like one of the things that always kind of fills my heart is when I'm when I'm around like a group of like queer punks and mm -hmm. queer punks are like some of my favorite people. And we've I've been able to like 
you know, have like brunches or go to gigs together. And it's just like a whole different kind of camaraderie than I have with like, I don't know, really any other people in the punk scene. Cause I feel like a lot of times some spaces haven't been kind to queers in punk and, um, to even femmes in punk and hardcore. And so it's like one of my favorite things is to just like be with a core group of people that understand that punk is supposed to be inclusive and we're supposed to be chill. And so when I'm in those when the, when I'm in those communities, it feels great. And when I'm around other straight edge people, it's one of those things where I'm just like, oh, you you get me. I don't have to explain a lot of things. And like those are the times when it feels nice. To, yeah. to feel like you're validated by other people. Yeah. And, you know, sort of in returning to your point, I think, you know, the the times when I am around, you know, like queer punks and when I'm around kind of women and femme punks, um, in a lot of ways, like those are those are the times that feel it feels the most like what punk is supposed to be it's not necessarily when punk is being like the, the boys club, which it, which I, I struggle a lot with, um, in that, like, I want to recognize the reality that, you know, punk and hardcore and metal in a lot of ways, um, you know, reflect the same sort of patriarchal values that, come out of the systems that they were created in and even, you know, mirror the systems that they were created to push against. Um, and also, and, you know, they've also been very whitewashed and sort of heterosexualized. Um, there's all of those things. And also that there have always been, you know, queer brown and black women sort of who were integral to the punk scene um, and I remember having, uh, I remember having this conversation with somebody in San Diego, uh, about the history of the Shea Cafe, which, um, most people have heard of, like I had known about the Shea Cafe years before I ever moved to California, but it's a sort of like all ages community run venue on the campus of UC San Diego. Uh, and I was talking to a friend who was telling me some history about the Shea and, you know, it's sort of current iteration, it's current iterations and how it's gotten to where it is. And he told me, he's mentioned that, you know, well, the person who's like really responsible for it is this, this person who based on their name and the pronouns that were being used to describe them, I believe identifies as a woman, although I've never met, I've never met this person. And I also can't remember what their name is, uh, and so, you know, my friend was telling me that this, uh, you know, this person is actually the person who like revived the Shea and sort of did a lot of the shows. But most people don't know that they know this other guy who usually is there running the soundboard because he's been this visible face and not to take anything away from what he does. But also like this, you know, woman gets erased a lot from the conversation about who helped kind of maintain this. And so having that, ex have, being told that story and it really sticking, it, what it really stuck with me or what part of it really stuck with me is that, oh, right. You know, that's the reminder that yes, sort of patriarchy exists in punk and hardcore, but also like saying that it is a, 
like describing it as a boys club in a lot of ways sort of continues to perpetuate the assumption that women, that femmes, that trans people, that queer people, that you know, black and brown people aren't a part of it when really they are. They're just erased from the history. Their 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 stories aren't the ones that are you know told and sort of held up as the meaningful stories. Yeah, because for a genre that consistently gets labeled as like, um, or even just like appears so straight white dude kind of thing, it was right. built by people of color and it was built by women and. Like, that's why I'm really glad that, like, today's generation of punks are, like, making space for that and are trying to make sure that that doesn't get erased. To everybody that I love today, I want to feel ashamed that I seen inside me. All right, going to take this break in the podcast to share with you some good information about my buddy Corey Purvis, who makes some amazing freaking artwork. He actually made the artwork for the album that you are listening to throughout this episode for the I Kill Giants self-titled album. Uh, Corey is just a ridiculous artist that I have been a big fan of for the last few years. He's made a lot of artwork for a lot of great bands and a lot of uh, organizations and merch and stuff like that over the last few years. And he does a lot of just his own unique designs that he puts on shirts and stickers and stuff and honestly one of the coolest independent artists right now that i love to support if you go to cory purvis p-u-r-v-i-s dot big dot com it's c-o-r-e-y-p-u-r-v-i-s dot big dot com there will be a link in the show notes uh go to cory purvis dot big dot com you can get yourself a bunch of his cool artwork on a bunch of shirts and enamel pins and stickers he makes a really cool uh, design stuff that he likes to make with like uh, appliances and people's faces blurred out and whatnot. I just think it's some of the most fascinating artwork that's being made and he does a lot of commission work and he owns Near Mint Records who is releasing this remastered version of the I Kill Giants album that you're hearing throughout this episode. That's what's so friggin' rad uh, about Corey is he does a whole bunch of cool stuff, including owning a record label that puts out a lot of cool music while he's also making a lot of great art. So if you want to get some cool stuff done, go to CoreyPurvis.BigCartel.com or just, you know, search for him. He's pretty easy to find. He's got a lot of stuff all over the internet. All right, let's get back to this conversation with Connor McLaughlin. So you are an adjunct professor. What specifically do you teach and what is your like area of interest in work that you do? Yeah, so it's sort of funny because as an adjunct, I, in a lot of ways, I teach what I get assigned to teach and not that I don't get to make my own curricula, but I like teach what there are openings to teach. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's been interesting for me to think about the what I teach and how it relate how it relates and how to connect it to the things that I'm also sort of personally interested in. Uh, so the class that I have taught the most often is a class called leadership and ethics. So because I teach in a leadership studies department, uh, I have a lot of students who have different sort of career trajectories in mind and notions of where the where they want to go. So my department houses our higher education program. So I do teach courses that have a lot of people who are studying to be student affairs professionals and going through their professional preparation programs. Uh, I also uh, work with a lot of students who are studying nonprofit leadership and management, folks who are studying K through 12 leadership. Uh, There's a student in one of my current classes who is actually getting a master's degree in social innovation through the School of Peace and Justice Studies. Uh, so I teach students who do a lot of kinds of things. And so I, my ethics class is not necessarily specifically about higher education, although I draw a lot from higher education as oftentimes a metaphor for uh, sort of bigger issues, bigger ethical decisions that need to be addressed because it's the thing I have the most access to and the most experience from. But I try to do it in a way that is accessible to people who don't already have degrees in higher education or who don't work in higher education. Uh, So my interests are really around, uh, I mean, the thing that I am most interested in is, you know, being a straight heterosexual or a heterosexual cisgender white man. uh, I have sort of become very interested in and very sort of dedicated to continuing to understand intellectually and also put into practice actually uh, the ways that people who hold sort of dominant group positions can be active participants in creating just spaces. I believe very firmly that, you know, part of ending racial oppression is white people taking up the work of dismantling their own racism. I think part of a big part of ending sort of gender gender based oppression is cis cis people and cis men in particular sort of owning the ways in which they've contributed to systems of oppression and dismantling their investments in them and so when i think about teaching an ethics course i put a lot of energy into thinking about well ethics is effectively about the question of right and wrong what is the right thing to do and what are the what is the wrong thing to do how can I, I guess, mobilize this idea that people need to use their power, the power that they have in service of creating justice, as a way to understand how to make choices about what is right and what is wrong? And so, you know, we, we do, of course, we cover some of the classical sort of ethical frameworks. You know, we talk about Kant. We also talk very critically about Kant, which is fun, always funny because when I read my students' final papers, like half of the people talk about how the categorical imperative is crap and the other half use the categorical imperative to sort of frame their arguments. <laughs> um, and we talk about utilitarianism and the benefits and pitfalls of that. But I, the course isn't a philosophy course, so I try to spend a lot of time sort of making it very practical. And so we ask a lot of questions like, okay, well, how does the culture that you grew up in inform what you understand as being right and being wrong? 
how does it frame the way you interact with other people around this idea of right and wrong? How has your relationship with religion and spirituality framed your understanding of right and wrong? How has your race framed your understanding of right and wrong? And so, and even those are very like heady philosophical questions. So, uh, it's, so one of the things that I do is I actually, at the beginning of the semester, I do some work with the students around like picking a decision that they are trying to make in their lives. And for some students, it's, uh, I don't want to I don't want to trivialize them because I actually think they're very important questions. But for some students, some students end up picking these issues that can seem very small. Like there's a student in my class this year who I think is writing a really fantastic paper on the ethics of pet discipline. He just got a puppy. He doesn't want the puppy to relieve itself on his furniture in his apartment. Mm -hmm. So so he's trying to figure out, like, what to me is the right way to sort of house train and discipline a dog yeah and i and he was like he actually asked me at one point like oh well but is this okay like this seems like a really silly thing and i said no i think this is a fantastic question you're ultimately asking about your your or you're asking about doing an examination of how you interact with another living thing in the world yeah that's important yeah um and then you know I had a student in this in the class previous who was who works for a nonprofit that has a government contract and part of their government contract is sort of reporting demographic data about the use of their services and this person knows sort of with a high degree of certainty that there are undocumented folks using utilizing their services and was trying to figure out what the ethical way to report the information to maximize their access to government funding while not potentially exposing these undocumented folks to potential repercussions. Yeah. Um, which is an issue of a different scale yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And both incredibly important things. And so we don't just talk about these questions of like theorizing how religion plays a part in that. We ask questions like, how does, how does, how does your relationship to religion define what you think of as right and wrong mm -hmm. in issues of disciplining your pet or reporting government, you know, government funding requests and stuff like that? How does your, how does your race shape that? So I have a question. How does your, relationship with punk and straight edge inform your ideas of what is right and what is wrong. And I'm sure you've thought about this in plenty. <laughs> totally. Um, I actually, it's funny. I was actually talking to a friend at a conference, rel uh, at a conference, a few at ACPA actually hey. about how I, uh, I actually think I want to do some like academic writing about this. Um, we were having this conversation about like that punk in a lot of ways feels like it had, it could be an epistemology. It could be a way of knowing and a way of understanding the world, a, a way of uh, making sense of the world. And yes! it comes with its own, and it comes with its own assumptions and its own, you know, pitfalls that need to be critically examined and ownership needs to be taken of them. But I genuinely do think that in a lot of ways, like being punk 
and growing up in punk and and being having so much of how I understand the world be informed by punk. Like it's very much a lens that I use. Yeah. And so does being straight edge. And so, you know, one of the questions that being straight edge, I think prompts me to ask when I make questions, when I make decisions about what I think is right and what I think is wrong is, you know, what is the societal expectation about this? And do I agree with it? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the, what is the relationship to peer pressure that this issue presents or what, what external forces am I being told are the right things to do? And do I agree with that? Does that sit with what I feel is right about the world. Um, punk also was the first place where I really started to understand that there are systematic structures at play mm. uh, that shape people's lives. Um, and, you know, I can thank sort of my exposure to crass for that in a mm. lot of ways. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that punk sort of asks me to examine or being punk sort of means that I need to examine is what are the systems at play? Are there systems, are there bigger systemic structures impacting, you know, my relationship to this issue and what I think is right and what I think is wrong about it? And are those systems, who are those systems benefiting? Hmm. Um, So in a lot of ways, punk taught me to take a critical lens to the, to my own decision-making and my own, sort of assumptions about what is right and what is wrong. Um, and I wrote, I wrote a post on my blog relatively recent, uh, well, I say relatively recently, it was probably six months ago at this point, (laughs) but it was actually, I I sort of came to the conclusion that it's because of punk that I am even able to be critical about the ways in which punk has created its own, you know, sexist and transphobic hierarchies and its own sort of gendered roles and, created a gender structure that it, that also perpetuates inequity and created sort of, and has, you know, internalized its own racism and, or has internalized racism and sort of created its own racist structures. Um, and so in that way, like I, I continue to be in love with and incredibly appreciative of the lessons that punk has taught me. And I think I critique it. I think I, I'm interested in also critiquing it, um, and be, and, while being an active participant in it because I love it so much because it matters so much to me. Well, and I think Um, that that is necessary. And I've talked about it a bunch on this podcast before, but I think if you truly love and care about something, you'll continue to question it and make sure that, and I, I feel like in a way that will either continue to validate why you care so much or will challenge you to re-examine whether or not it is something that you should have in your life. And I mean, mm-hmm. I've struggled with that for years with my faith and with a bunch of other things. And so it's a constant um, re-examination of like, and I feel like this is where a lot of folks tend to fall to like kind of siloed thinking or a lot of like, um, uh, I don't know group think sort of processes where they only want to hear what they want to hear and challenging their own beliefs is hard. And I feel like, uh, while there is a bit of stubbornness in the punk scene, the people that tend to be the most self-aware or at least the most self-critical are punks. The folks that I've met who are punks and they're like, because it's important that if we're Mm -hmm. going, if we're going to hold this kind of, 
to some degree, self-righteous view of humanity and society, we have to make sure that we are like in, in Mm -hmm. for it. And I've done a lot of reading on like punk influences in academia and in um, society at large. And it's, it always comes back to the fact that for as counter culture as we are, there is still a level to which we have to kind of coexist with a capitalist society with certain systems and while still trying to dismantle them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there, what kind of ethical quandaries do you find in all of that mess being a part of the systems while trying to tear down the systems? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things that I sort of build into my course, uh, and it's a, it's a hard thing because it, uh, well, one of the, uh, blah, 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 blah. No worries. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I try to stress really hard, really immensely for the students in my course. And I say it out loud to them just as much as I say it for myself, uh, because I need this reminder as much as possible is that, you know, ethic. So like morals are these sort of big, you know, definitive statements about what is right and what is wrong. Ethics, a lot of times, is the imperfect application of those structural sort of efforts. So we can have our sort of moral compass about this is right and this is wrong. You know, like capitalism is bad is like a very is a moral statement. Um, Ethically, we have to do our best to sort of to measure up to that statement in our choice making day to day. And I'm not saying it's impossible because I think it is possible, but it's complicated. It's very hard um, to sort of exist in the world and particularly to exist, you know, as an academic, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just working for a college invests oneself in capitalism. Um, There's no way around that. And also, um, so we, so, or, so we need to be able to you know, re- reconcile the fact that we, like the nature of how we choose to do what we do, you know, working as working at colleges being the example at the moment, um, is an imperfect application of our moral sort of framework. Yeah. And one of the things that, and this is the connection that I make between this and punk, is that I often experience in myself and in my students over the course of the semester, that there is this sort of like this falling into nihilism that usually happens around the middle of the semester. Once we've sort of covered all of the theories and we really start to get into the nitty gritty of how hard it is to actually live by these theories and do it quote unquote perfectly or quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that people start to develop this, this frustration and sort of this attitude of it's all pointless, like nothing works, everything is wrong, nothing is good enough. Why, why should I, why should I try to do anything? Like it's all, it all sucks. Oh man, I can relate to that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I totally feel that a lot and I see it in my students. Um, and so, you know, the, there is, there is a, this book that I read, um, I read it right as I was going into my last year of my PhD program. Uh, so I was done classes. I was working on my dissertation, which was about 
sort of straight white men and trying to figure out some way to maybe have straight white men be slightly better at creating just environments on their campus. Um, and probably was feeling some, some nihilism and some hopelessness in there. And I read this book by Courtney Martin, um, called do it anyway. And I'd heard her talking about it on a podcast called on being, um, she and Parker Palmer, who is a fantastic leadership scholar and poet, beautiful thinker. We're talking about her book. And so I read, I finally, I convinced my boss at the time to buy the book for a couple of people. And he was out of town when they came in. So I got to open the box and read it before he gave them away to all the people <laughs> he was supposed to give them away to. And, you know, I keep, I keep a screenshot of the last paragraph, uh, on the, of the book on my phone and I revisit it pretty frequently. I don't have it memorized, but effectively it says, you know, we as a generation of people who were born in the eighties and nineties need to be the most caring, thoughtful, um, compassionate and sort of just generation that has ever walked the face of the earth. And we need to know that it won't be enough. We need to do it anyway. And I read that book and I was sitting in my office at the University of San Diego and I just cried mm. because it was, uh, to my mind, sort of the most sort of inspiring call to action I think I had ever read. And it perfectly distilled like how easy it is to fall into that, like everything is pointless, nothing works, everything sucks, we can't do anything. And perhaps that is also just like a very privileged mindset to just, you know, have the have the privilege to give up on things. Um, but it really challenged me to like really re rewire my thinking on that to think that, you know, the fact that it is not enough means that the work is not done yet. And if the work is not done yet, that means that I still have something I can do. And ever since that day, that has been sort of my like personal mantra. Whenever I feel hopeless, whenever I feel scared, whenever I feel like I can't, I can't do enough or I'm not good enough. I just, I have to like sort of recenter myself, sort of really get in touch, do my little meditation. And I just keep telling myself, do it anyway, do oh. it anyway, do it anyway. Yeah. Like as much as I feel that, that overbearing sense of nihilism sometimes, and I think it's also like going through a lot of mental health stuff tends to like, I don't know, mess you up a little bit and that, that kind of thinking as well. But I kind of, I really relate to also this idea of do it anyway, because there are a lot of times that even my partner and like people around me, like Craig, I don't know how and why you do all the things you do. And I'm like, well, I feel like if I don't do them, no one's going to do them. <laughs> and so I just do it. And, um, I think that that is, um, that's kind of something I needed to hear today, to be honest. And yeah. I just put that in my Amazon cart. So I'm probably going to get that book and read it next week. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, it's it's really beautiful. Yeah, I, it sounds really impactful. 
All right, it's time for the music break portion of the podcast. Very excited to be sharing tunes from the self-titled I Kill Giants album that came out five years ago. It's getting a remastered repressing uh, by uh, Near Mint Records. Go to wearenearmint.com and get yourself one of the two vinyl uh, options. You can also get yourself a shirt if you'd like. And if you're in Europe or the UK, you can go to dognightsproductions.limit limitedrun.com that's nights with the k dog nights productions limitedrun.com and get yourself a copy there and I'm really excited because I've become friends with a lot of the members that were in I Kill Giants originally, and they are reuniting, uh, and they're going to be playing a few gigs the first uh, second weekend of June, so the eighth, uh, ninth, and tenth. They're going to be playing some gigs along the East Coast. I'll have actually have a ticket that I'm going to be giving away because I can't go anymore because I'm going to be in Oregon. So I might just be giving that away to some of y'all on social media. So stay alert to our social media at uh, Pod on Instagram and Twitter because I might be giving away that ticket to one of y'all if you want to go to it to the Boston gig at the Sinclair. It's going to be a good one. But I'm now going to play you a song called Collector off of the self-titled I Kill Giants album that came out five years ago. Get the repress over at wearenearmint.com. Here is Collector by I Kill Giants. I feel fine when the stars align I feel fine when my body's warm You feel fine fucking all the time It fucking feels cold
I'm again having this moment of like really appreciating the opportunity to get to talk about stuff like this because I don't feel like I always get to do it in academic. I don't. I feel like I don't get to be this part of myself with academic people. Aww. So the opportunity to do it has been like really life giving. Oh, that's wonderful! Like it's it's a it's kind of the same, and I totally get that idea of like how punk is used as a good lens to see the world and like kind of how I explain myself to other people sometimes. Cause like I do, I do talks at other colleges and mm-hmm. I have a sliding scale for like how much I charge. And I tell the schools that like, I'm a punk at heart. If your budget is smaller, whatever, I will do it for a smaller price. I do not mind. Um, and I've done a couple for free because I'd rather just the education get there. than you have to worry about paying for that. And mm-hmm. I've had people just be like, no, you're invalidating the work that you do or yourself as a resource. And I go, but at the same point, at the same time, I don't care. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'd rather just make sure that the students are learning and I don't necessarily need that money or whatever. Like, I'm in a place where I can suggest yeah. that. Like, it's okay to me. And again, completely informed by punk. Some nice little flash questions. Quick stuff. Sweet. So what is your favorite color? Black. Oh, yeah. What about your favorite food? Tacos. Oh, do you have like a specific type of taco? I know you're in like, you're in California, so you get some good tacos. And I live in San Diego that has the best tacos in the world. And I don't want to play, I don't want to play into the sort of macho, hardcore, tough guy persona that i built up a lot as a teenager but so i'm not gonna say anybody who disagrees can fight me but Mm -hmm. know that i am willing to defend my position uh so i have uh there's a friend of mine uh who uh has a business under the name chicano soul food who makes his grandmother's uh sort of like stewed meats and stewed veggies recipes and puts them on tacos that i think are some of the most amazing tacos ever and uh, sort of on the bigger spectrum, uh, there's a place in San Diego that has a couple of locations and one in Las Vegas uh, called Tacos El Gordo that does uh, some of the most amazing, I, I well, I don't even have to say in my opinion because they have actually been voted the best tacos in the United States oh, uh, wow. by like culinary magazines and stuff like that. So my two favorite tacos are the ones my friend Sergio makes and uh, the ta- the tacos, particularly the lengua tacos at Tacos El Gordo in uh, National City, California. Dang, that sounds like something I need to uh, I need to do. Absolutely, um, you should come to San Diego. Um, I've actually never been to San Diego, so that might be a thing I need to do. Uh, we're thinking of new places we need to experience and Katie's never been to California. So we should make this happen. Great. Um, yeah. So what about a favorite movie? You a movie person? I am a movie person. Uh, my favorite movie. So I have like three favorite movies and their position sort of moves around depending on the mood that I am in. Uh, but so generally it's, uh, Rushmore, almost famous and Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, Shaun of the Dead was the most uh was one of the most impactful movies for me ever uh just because it was uh 
I was just I was in love with every aspect of it. The meta commentary, the awareness of sort of the history of zombie movies is amazing. Um, Almost Famous really touches on a soft spot that I have for 70s arena rock and and like the quote unquote heyday of Rolling Stone. And then um, Rushmore uh, very much connects to my experience of being like this sort of out of place weird kid at a private school, having to wear weird uniforms and not feeling like feeling like I should be 20 years older than I am, because that was the kind of that was the kind of 14 year old I was. I wanted to be 35 when I was 14. (laughs) That's so awesome. Uh, I'm a huge Shaun of the Dead. I'm a huge just Simon Pegg fan in general. And yeah. like Hot Fuzz is in the same way. Like I mm-hmm. love that movie. That's the thing I love about like those two movies specifically is they're just so self-aware in mm-hmm. the critique that they're making about those types of movies. It's just so yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, what about? And, and I love. Oh, I was just gonna say, and I loved the third one because it was the first time I ever got to. Uh, hear one of my favorite bands, uh, the Sisters of Mercy, both mentioned and played on a movie soundtrack. Aww. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, The End of the World, right? Or At the End of the World? Yeah, The World's End. The World's End, yeah. Yeah. Because that came out at the same time as uh, This is the End or whatever like that. It, yeah. The Seth Rogen one. Um, what about TV? Do you like some TV all time? Uh, right? I, you know, yeah, I love I love some TV, although I don't get to watch it very much anymore. Uh, but I love uh, The Good Place. Yeah, I wanted to ask a, about that. Yeah, uh, I love that show. Uh, my introductory lecture to my ethics class involves clips from The Good Place. And uh, I, I love that show. That show means so much to me on so many levels. I also really like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yes. And I'm so happy that it is like uncanceled. Yes. And then, uh, and then uh, I, re- I was talking to a friend recently uh, who, and I had said like, oh yeah, I've never watched Frasier. And so he's like, oh, you should watch it. It's, it's really sort of smart and funny. And I've been, so I've been watching it like slowly on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been enjoying it. I mean, it's da- it's definitely dated and not all of it ages well, but there are some things about it that I really enjoy. Um, it has like, I like the sort of juxtaposition of Frasier being this sort of, sort of heady, sort of uh, very effete sort of socialite person yeah. juxtaposed with his father, who's like a working class cop and how they negotiate that relationship. That probably also says something about my relationship with my dad, but... <laughs> That's probably another podcast. Yeah. Maybe all of us and all of our dads. Um, but no, I, I I had a similar thing where there was a show that I had not really watched, but then I had like multiple friends be like, how haven't you done this? You would love this show. And that was Seinfeld. And mm. so I ended up going through Seinfeld, like all of Seinfeld in like a month. And mm. I could not believe it's like when you go back and, like, for me, it's, like, when I went back and found out, like, the Get Up Kids and Sunny Day Real Estate and a bunch of, like, those bands and realizing, holy crap, they influenced all the bands I listened to. And right. then I realized, oh, my gosh, Seinfeld influenced and gave so many people a platform. Holy mm-hmm. crap. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and there is one other show that I need to mention, uh, particularly as it relates to the world of higher education. There was a show that was on MTV in, I think, the late 90s uh, called Undergrads. Yeah, I remember that. You know, you know yeah. about the show? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, there was only one season. It was it's uh, there's only like eight episodes. It is, I think it is the best portrayal of student life, sort of non classroom mm-hmm. college life yeah. that's ever been committed to DVD. Uh, I I love it so much. It's the it's it's a show about college that never once enters a classroom. Yeah. And Goodness. like people's people's responsibilities as an RA is like central to several plot lines. Uh, it's it's just it's a fantastic show. It's one that I constantly recommend that people go sit people like revisit with their student affairs and like academic hats on because it's just amazing. Dang. What's your favorite place you've ever uh, visited traveled to? It's going to sound really corny if I say San Diego, um, <laughs> but I really like it here. It's yeah. really cool. Um, I also i the place the place that I have been that I am like really really anxious and inspired to get back to is I really want to go back to uh, Dublin. Oh, cool! I went I went to Dublin in two thousand. Um, and it was really amazing, but I was 17 and I was on like a high school trip. And so it, I was like real, I really wanted to like explore and figure out like what local people were doing and not see touristy things. <laughs> and so some of it, some of my sort of desire to get back is informed by that. But yeah, I really, really want, I really want to go see Dublin again. I really want to go to London. Um, and then a place that I have never been that I really want to go to is Tokyo. Hey, Same. Yeah, I'm a big anime nerd, so mm. uh, I really want to go, you know, to where the sausage is made, if you will. <laughs> I watched a lot of anime. That's awesome. It's fantastic. Um, lastly, and I think we've covered some of this a little bit, what mm-hmm. are some of your favorite bands or what's what's an album that you would say, this is the album for me or even current stuff, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so hard for me to pick one album. Uh, you know, usually, usually if, if I've got to do like top five, it's um, the Sisters of Mercy's Floodland, American Nightmares background music, uh, Coheed and Cambria's uh, In Keeping Secrets yes. of Silent Earth 3, Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die, Wu-Tang Whew. Clan's Enter the 36 Chambers, uh, Con- Kanye West Graduation. <sighs> Um, you just, you took a hard turn and I love it. <laughs> I did. Um, Alkaline Trio's Good Morning. And sort of like a, a more current thing. Um, I love the, la- the, well, I love everything they've ever put out, but particularly, uh, The Greatest Generation by The Wonder Years. Yes. I think that, I think that record is just mind blowing in terms of how incredible and creative it is. Uh, it definitely touches a lot of chords for me in terms of things I've experienced in my life. Um, it also helps that the band is from about 20 minutes from where I grew up. Yeah, That's one of um, my partner's like favorite bands. And I absolutely love them. One, they do a really good job at cat. Like Dan Campbell does a really good job at like capturing class issues as well mm-hmm. as just like, like the disparity of like growing up in the burbs compared to, you know, anywhere else. And he also throws refer- wrestling references everywhere, so I'm yeah a big fan of that. <laughs> yeah, I love it, and I love that. Re- I love that album. I haven't listened to their new one yet, but I'm really excited to. It's and pretty I good. Wanna, 
Yeah. It was a grower. I've been hearing for me. really great things about it. Yeah. Their last one, No Closer to Heaven, was like, I really loved that album. Yeah. 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 It's funny. They, um, I had this very sort of intense sense memory while I was listening to that one because he, um, he makes a reference in the song, I Don't Like Who I Was Then, about yep. Shore Memorial Hospital. And that was, uh, so it's a hospital in South Jersey. Uh, and that was the hospital that my dad was in for quite a while. Mm. Uh, and I remember he got out of the hospital on my birthday mm. one year, I think when I turned 14, because he had had uh, like a really intense surgery on his neck. And when he, when uh, Dan Campbell says in that song, uh, a night in Shore Memorial, I was, I was 15 and afraid. I remember sort of sitting, I was transported back to the chair in my parents' living room when I saw my dad get out of the car and come home from the hospital that day and i was like oh yeah this record's gonna stick yeah that's like that's like i think my favorite song on that album um, yeah which i think i'm growing into someone i can trust yeah uh, yeah that and that's actually in the first verse he makes a reference to i'm working baby face in the mid-south in the 80s i took right. a blade hit it in my wrist tape yep um yeah that's so we both have our favorite references in both verses. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I could totally keep going That's on like <laughs> records and records and records. Cause I just, I love music. Um, That's wonderful. I'm trying to think of what, like, what's the record at? Well, yesterday I was listening to uh, Alkaline Trio's good morning uh, while I was like hanging around the house. Cause I, that record is really incredible as well. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't been as up on new things and I kind of really want to get into new things. The thing that is on my list that I want to sort of put out there, particularly as it relates to the topic of this conversation is there is a, uh, there is a straight edge band from DC called protester. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Uh, who I, who everybody has told me are really amazing and I'm really excited to check out. Um, and then I feel like I also want to give a shout out to some local friends of mine uh, who just put out a record. Uh, they put out a split, but they're called Meth X Breath. They're like a really amazing straight edge band. Uh, and uh, their and their new record is super awesome. That's awesome. Well, yeah. sick, man. Thank you so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. Yeah, well, morning I mean, I know, for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One, I know I said this before, but thank you for being open to some random person that you've never met before reaching out and just being like, hey, can I talk to you about being straight edge? Not honestly, not the first time. And that's what I've loved about making this podcast is like it comes to people in different ways. And like I share it in a lot of the groups. And so when someone at least shows any sort of interest and has the connection and it makes sense, I, I love making these connections because like, hey, like we have plenty in common so that when we're in yeah. human form together there's going to be no shortage of conversation <laughs> yeah it's going to be it's going to be a blast and i'm really looking forward to it this was really great to get to do so just like thank you for the opportunity yeah. thank you for the space to connect and to talk about this and i'm incredibly appreciative of what you're doing thank you so much well thank you and i love the work you're doing and hopefully i can get out to san diego and uh at least next year in boston for acpa we'll be hanging out so awesome. maybe we can do one in person we can have a follow-up chat oh, i would love that all right well you have yeah, a good you have a good full rest of your day you as well all right see ya take care we did it another episode done we did it. 
Hey, yeah, yeah, look at us. Another episode complete. Very thankful for Connor McLaughlin taking so much time to chat with me this week. Uh, had a lot of fun getting nice and deep and ethical with him and philosophical about punk and about life and about what it all means. And it, it was really good to just have that uh, conversation and feel in, in good community with him throughout this episode. Uh, if you like what you heard throughout the episode, the music that you heard, please go to wearenearmint.com and get yourself one of the new vinyl pressings of the the self-titled I Kill Giants album that came out five years ago. This is the repress. This is the reissue of newly remastered by my friend Zach Weeks. A whole bunch of Really cool pressings and some shirts and stuff are up. And if you're in the Boston area on June 10th and you want to go to their gig, I'm going to be giving away a ticket to the sold-out gig at the Sinclair because I got a ticket when it was announced and then I ended up having to... I'm going to have to go home to Oregon that weekend, which is fine, but I'm going to miss the gig, But so I'd rather just give away the ticket so someone else can go to the gig. And if you remember last month's In Between Spins, getting to the gig, is the most important thing you can do. If you like what you hear, you can also go to ikillgiants.bandcamp.com or go to any streaming service and listen to more of their tunes there. You can also check out some of their other bands uh, that some of the members are in, like Really From, Haunter, as well as um, Pendejo. So if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, that'd be really cool. We had a big subscriber jump this month, which felt really cool to see. And we've seen a bunch of streams happening. And I'm really glad that people are listening to uh, the new episodes and going back through the catalog. A lot of folks going back through. That makes me really happy that folks are listening to some of the older episodes. We're coming up on a year of the podcast, which is really super cool. Hoping to do a, a neat, different kind of episode on the one-year mark in a couple weeks. Uh, maybe Katie and I will do something special. Who knows? Whatever. We'll figure it out when we get there. But next week, we will have an in-between spins episode. I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about record stores. So, yeah, we'll get to nerd out with that. And I'll just leave you with that. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Follow us at Edupunks Pod. Follow me at Craig Bidedman. And... That's it. I'm going to leave you with some tunes from I Kill Giants. Going to just head out now. Hope you're all doing well. Ah, let's get to work. <laughs> 